Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Joseph T. Stewart. He's the head of the history department at the University of Mary. His recent book, Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason, is our topic today. Uh, welcome, Professor Stewart. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for having me. All right, you, you begin with a fundamental revision, that the Enlightenment was not all reason versus faith, the, but that the movement was actually a, quote, source of religious inspiration. Uh, should we be surprised at that contention? Yeah, we should, actually, Mark, because for a long time the, the Enlightenment has been pictured as something opposed to Christianity, and, and that and that has um, emerged from both secular historians and Christian and Catholic historians, kind of on, on both sides has been that assumption, and hmm. just a different valuation. So a lot of the, the secular-minded uh, historians mainstream would see the Enlightenment is, is all good, Christianity bad. Uh, a lot of Catholic and Church historians have sort of reversed that valuation. Uh, Enlightenment bad, Christianity good. And there hasn't been a lot of discussion uh, between them for a long time, and so it's it, um, made it difficult to do a project like this up until about 20 years ago, when uh, uh, quite a few historians, especially American, have begun to rethink uh, the Enlightenment and, and examine all the ways in which Christians, uh, in a very sophisticated way, were, were also engaging with Enlightenment thought in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, those nasty atheists of the French Revolution, they, they weren't all that representative, or at least they were yeah, just one yeah, strain of Enlightenment thought. That's exactly right. Yeah, in fact, there were a lot of Enlightenment um, people of the time, I call them Enlighteners, um, who were very much against what was happening in the, in the French Revolution. Joseph Eibel in the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, for example, very sort of enlightened, sophisticated, high-in-the-government man. He's looking at what's going on in France and saying, well, that's not the Enlightenment. This is totally irrational. We have to, we have to kind of you know, take back uh, what the Enlightenment was really supposed to be about. And so it was contested even among the people of the day. And for some reason, the French anti-clericals get all the credit for being the Enlightenment yeah. when that's unfair, because the French themselves actually looked to the English, and there was not just one, one variety. You, you actually single out one group, the Carmelite nuns, who resisted the revolution, but you say were also representative of something important in the Enlightenment. What, what was that? What were they representative of? Yeah, so the sisters. Yeah, thanks for bringing them. The book begins with them, um, and, and maybe I'll just say, just by, by way of sort of background a little bit, that the, uh, the sisters are sort of a story emphasizing one of the three parts of this book, uh, which are strategies in, by which Christians interact with the Enlightenment. And so part one of the book is about conflict. Part two is about engagement. Um, 
Christians engaging the Enlightenment, and part three is about retreat. I mean, we, we can talk more about that one uh, in a little bit. But, but so the sisters are in the first part, and they they emphasize they um, they're emblematic of this conflict with the Enlightenment because they were martyred during the French Revolution for being faithful to their vows and faithful to uh, to religion. But I guess what I, I tried to sort of uh, in a subtle way show, right at the beginning of the book, was that these sisters also lived out certain Enlightened ideals um, very beautifully, namely uh, liberty, you had to be give your free consent to join the order, uh, equality, you couldn't uh, have your aristocratic titles go with you if you became a member of uh, this Carmelite community, all were sisters in Christ and were mm-hmm. equal, and then of course fraternity, in, in which um, these sisters took care of each other when they're sick or when they're struggling, and they had to forgive each other, and, and a kind of participative knowledge that they gained through community um, is sort of the irony that, uh, that these nuns lived out. Uh, what happened to them? Yeah, so in 1794, they were put on trial in, uh, ironically, the, the courtroom of liberty, and um, they were sentenced to death. Uh, an image of the Sacred Heart had been found on their possession, and that was a really uh, politically sensitive symbol because it was associated with the revolt of the Vendée going on. So they were charged as traitors, and they were brought to the guillotine. And one of the, the beautiful things about this, this story, Mark, is that when they were brought to the streets of Paris in the carts, um, normally the people surrounded the streets and just screamed and threw things at them and yelled, and it was just a very horrible kind of situation. But these sisters mm-hmm. began to sing uh, the Salve Regina and the Psalms and the Divine Office on their way to be martyred, and everybody in the city watching just fell silent, mm-hmm. just, just watching these words welling up from the hearts of these women as much as from the very depths of Christian culture, perhaps reminding them in a haunting way of certain things that they had lost. Mm-hmm. And then they died, one by one, singing around the guillotine, and it just made a really a striking impression on the age. Uh, they offered their lives for the end of the Great Terror, and in fact, it did end ten days later, later with the death of Robespierre, who had organized the whole thing himself. <laughs> you turn next to good old Jean-Jacques Rousseau, how does he relate to this other enlightenment? Yeah, so he's in the, the part of the, the book on the conflictual enlightenment, it's called. It's this, this part of the enlightenment that's really in conflict with basic uh, Christian kinds of ideas. And, and he fits into it because he has sort of what you could call a reverse conversion. <laughs> Um, he he wrote a book called The Confessions, which was actually intentionally meant to sort of undo Augustine's confession. And uh, what happened to him one day in 1749 as he's walking along uh, just outside of Paris to go visit his friend Diderot uh, was a kind of religious experience in which he falls down sort of weeping and has this kind of vision of the original perfection of human nature. And original sin is, is a lie, and um, the human beings have this, this original perfection which can sort of emerge uh, if we just arrange society correctly. And mm-hmm. and so this ideology became super powerful, and he was a really good writer and communicator, too, um, tapped into some of the, the deep fears and hopes of the age. And so his books were widely read and um, deeply influenced a turn toward, uh, I would say, sort of emotion and a kind of pantheism as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of collapse the spiritual into the material to create sort of a, a monism that, that feeds into the, the French Revolution uh, two decades after he passed away. Um, and so his thought, yeah, definitely contributes to this conflictual alignment, and we could say this kind of political religion, this secular political religion that we've seen in modern history uh, all the way up to today. 
And how did Rousseau's concept of virtue uh, strike the Catholic authorities before the revolution? Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. There were you know sophisticated um, Catholic responses to to Rousseau by the Archbishop of of Paris and uh, Nicolas Bergier was a great uh, apologist and priest of the time. And yeah, and you know, and even even people like Voltaire, though other mainstream um, Enlightenment figures, also criticized. Rousseau, because the idea of Rousseau is that virtue is this kind of sincerity. It, it's not necessarily um, doing good. It's it's feeling good. It's being well-intentioned. Um, it's sort of celebrity virtue. Um, and so the idea there was a critique by both Catholics and other mainstream figures like Voltaire was that, well, this doesn't actually do anything. We, virtue has to do with a sort of habitual, you know, doing good. And, uh, and you can see that in yeah Franklin and Voltaire and of course his Catholic critics as well. But this idea of sincerity, uh, of sort of being true to yourself, you know, is something that's deeply influential all the way up in, in into our 21st century. And, and this really was popularized by Rousseau. Uh, what in in this in that section right after? What was the case of a man named Jean Calas, and how mm-hmm. how how did Voltaire get involved in that? Yeah, yeah. So this is a little bit later in part one of the book, and we're we're trying to understand like where did this conflictual enlightenment come from? And the typical sort of knee-jerk Christian response to that would be, well, you know, these anti-Christian philosophers came up and they attacked the church, and they're the bad guys. And sure, there's there's truth to that. But what I found in a deeper level is to try to just to see the sources of the resentment against Christianity in the 18th century. And I realized that Christians and Catholics in particular had a, had a pretty embarrassing and um, st- uh, strong role, unfortunately, to play in the rise of that resentment, um, largely because of bad political thinking about the relation between church and state. Uh, but especially in France, it was really a, a persecutory regime that was created uh, hmm. through the alliance of church and state, of Catholics and the crown. Uh, in France, it would, that would allow basically very little intellectual or spiritual freedom in France. You, you had, not only had to be Catholic, you couldn't even be legally married uh, unless you were Catholic. You had to be a certain kind of Catholic. So if you were Jesuit, that's bad. If you're Jansenist, that's bad. You have to be a certain kind of politically correct Catholic to even um, be French, all through the, the much of the 18th century and the tail end of the 17th century. And so that created a lot of resentment beneath the surface of French culture that people like Voltaire and others sort of reacted against. And, and one of the sort of lightning um, episodes of this tension and this, uh, this resentment was this case of Jean Collat that you mentioned in 1762, uh, when this man, this Huguenot, who's a French Protestant um, living in Toulouse, um, one night his son was found dead. And, um, you know, it's not known for sure to this day how, how he was how he died. Um, was it suicide? Was it murder? I don't know. Um, but what historians have found is that definitely the prejudices that were deeply embedded in Catholic culture of southern France played a role in the way that the trial unfolded, and that the father was accused because he was Protestant, therefore he must have killed the son because the son was supposedly thinking about becoming Catholic, which actually wasn't true, but that was the myth that was that was there. And so the, the prejudices that were um, sort of embedded in French Catholic culture played out through this court case. Voltaire later takes up the cause of this family, because Jean was executed, and the family was despoiled of their property and everything. Uh, Voltaire defends the family, and really shows, I think, in some ways, the 
the, the positive side of this this very conflictual alignment in kind of the reform of criminal law and um, the need to be careful of the way that different kinds of prejudice affect the outcome of, of justice. Uh, why did John Locke deny toleration to Catholics? Right. Well, see, John Locke, he traveled through France as a young man, and he saw this persecutory regime that I mentioned uh, taking place. For example, he, 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 uh, he talked about how well, he was staying with a Protestant friend in France, and suddenly the, the Protestant church nearby was closed down. And, he, and the reason was is because, the official reason at least, was that uh, it was right next to a Catholic church, and the Protestants sang the psalms too loud, so the Catholics complained, and they got the police to then... Um, close the Protestant Church. Mm -hmm. So he saw that happening, that kind of injustice, that the lack of religious freedom that was happening, and he, he, had, he had a conception of Catholicism as inherently connected to the state, which, if we look at the broad sweep of history, is not true. We see lots of different you know, church-state relations in Catholic history, but the one that was most prominent in the sort of the Counter-Reformation, this early modern period, was definitely a, an alliance with the old, with, uh, between church and state. And so Locke believed that it wasn't possible to be Catholic and, and live in a non-Catholic state, like that you, would, you wouldn't be able to be loyal to that state because you were loyal to the Pope as both a spiritual and a temporal leader. So that's why Locke had that sort of narrow conception of toleration. Okay. Who was Maria Gaetana Agnesi? Yeah, thank you for that question. She is definitely one of my heroes. Um, she is the, the, the story that I used to emphasize just a completely different way of thinking about the Enlightenment, Mark. And this is this was what was really fun about this this book project, was to say, okay, we've told this familiar story of conflict that, that many of us are aware of in the first part. Um, now, can we look at the Enlightenment from a completely different angle? Can we try to see the Enlightenment through a different lens than, than simply the lens of the French Revolution, right, that sort of emphasized the conflict between the two? Um, you know, so in other words, can we, how do we look at the Enlightenment without so that sort of trauma-induced memory that the French Revolution has given to later generations? How do we actually be historians, and how do we think historically? When we go back to the 18th century, think about it on its own terms. They didn't know the French Revolution was going to happen. Um, so how did Christians of the time, you know, think about the Enlightenment? And what we found, actually, is that very few Christians wrote against the Enlightenment as a whole, as if it was something evil. Many of them, in fact, engaged with it uh, at a very sophisticated and high level, which is something we would actually hope for if we take faith and reason in the, in the Catholic and Christian intellectual tradition seriously. We would have hoped that, that they did that, in fact, that they did engage Enlightenment reason in, in a serious way. But memory of that has been, has been really lost because of the French Revolution. Anyway, to do to, to remember this differently, we need to leave France, and we need to look at the Enlightenment in other places like Italy and Germany. And one of the great figures in Italy was Maria Agnesi. She was the first woman in the world to write a book on mathematics in her own name. She was brilliant. Uh, she could um, debate in front of uh, audiences of dignitaries from around Europe in Latin, and if you had questions for her, you could ask her questions in French. Italian, German, Greek. Uh, she could respond in different languages. She would debate questions in philosophy and, uh, and also in mathematics and, and the empirical sciences, too. Just a brilliant, incredible woman who has been lost to history, uh, but has been recently uh, rediscovered through, um, through books like uh, Massimo Mazzotti's book on, 
uh, and Yessie, Mathematician of God. Brilliant, incredible book. I highly recommend. Um, and so she is this, becomes a symbol of this Catholic enlightenment. She would debate in a room surrounded by paintings, beautiful 18th century paintings, the largest of which depicted the resurrection of Jesus. And so faith and reason were sort of surrounding her family palace in Milan, and her upbringing in the Catholic Enlightenment of Milan uh, show her as one of the great women figures uh, who's, who changed the perception of women, really, in, in the Catholic Enlightenment. That's happening well before the later writings of Mary Wollstonecraft and kind of the, the later Enlightenment feminists. Uh, Marie Agnesi was doing what they dreamed about, uh, only she was doing it about 40 years before. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. Uh, as Enlightenment science moved forward, you, you make a lot out of the science of anatomy here and, and sort of how the Catholic Church uh, dealt with the science of anatomy. Why was anatomy controversial and, and how did the Church respond to an, anatomical science, particularly in episodes such as the, quote, carnival dissection? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so anatomy was the, the, the cutting edge, pun intended, um, uh, life science of the day. If biology, since Darwin, of course, biology has been the, the lead field, but um, it was definitely anatomy in the late 17th and 18th centuries um, because it was the direct study of life, you know, both animals and people, of course. Um, we have the newly invented uh, microscope uh, in, in the 17th century as well, assisted this, this process. But you have great figures, particularly in Italy, um, who many of whom were connected to to the church, and even uh, papal physicians um, and things. Who, these these people who um, were inspired by Galileo. They were called Galilean Catholics, and um, this the legacy of faith and reason. And ultimately, they believed that the smallest part of the body, the kidneys, the heart, whatever, the brain, uh, reveal the glory of God. The culture around them really supported that idea. That the smaller you go, the more analysis, uh, the more sort of you cut into something and, and, and analyze something down to its very parts, the more it reveals uh, the glory of God. And this can be seen in one of the key locations of the Catholic Enlightenment, which was Bologna. Uh, the, the Academy of Sciences in Bologna was sponsored by the popes, um, had um, leading scientists. Uh, it, was a, it was a really a research institution nearby the University of Bologna focused on teaching, but, um, but the research institution, the Academy of Sciences in Bologna, one of the, the leading places of the Catholic Enlightenment, and um, Anna Morandi, another one of these w great women of the Catholic Enlightenment, she was um, one of the most highly sought-after and trained, uh, self-trained um, anatomists of, of the day, and she and her husband um, anatomized uh, about a thousand bodies in their home and uh, created wax models out of these, these bodies uh, from everything from the, 
uh, the brain to the heart to the genitalia to the hand. They were particularly fascinated with the hand, with sense knowledge, um, the empiricism of the Enlightenment was. Hmm. And um, these were sought after around Europe, and her career was, was protected by the papacy and even sponsored. Um, and the idea was that, look, if we can reveal the human person, both men and women, what, what does the, the human body look like? We can understand uh, at a deeper level what it means to be human, and, and ultimately the fall, too. And, and this would be some of the uh, sculptures of the, uh, the anatomists would be arranged in such a way to, to emphasize, you know, you have Adam and Eve, and then you have their fall, and then you have sort of the decomposition of the body revealed layer by layer down to the bones until the last statues were holding, you know, like the, the sigh, the symbol of death. Um, and so the, the science of anatomy was sort of encapsulated in this wider theological narrative uh, about the meaning of it all. And this was um, at the heart of the Church's cultural strategy of engaging the Enlightenment in the 18th century. And what, what was the carnival dissection again? Yeah, in Bologna there would be a public dissection uh, in which uh, it was during carnival times, right before Lent, um, and um, people could buy tickets and you could come in and you could, you could watch... Uh, and often the, the Archbishop uh, Lambertini, who became Pope Benedict XIV, who uh, was the greatest Enlightenment Pope, uh, he would often attend these. Uh, he would uh, he would um, offer confession to a condemned criminal, who would be then executed, and then just later that day, the body would be anatomized uh, in front of uh, all these people. Meanwhile, mass was being said for the person's soul next door, and hmm. uh, and that was these, these carnival these carnival anatomies. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a vivid it's a vivid section in in your book uh was the question of the sex of the soul settled yeah so i think this this relates to the the woman question of the of the 18th century um and and the attempts that people were trying to make to to sort of rethink the status of women, because unfortunately there had been a, there had been a lot of misogynism sort of endemic within Christian culture all through the the early modern period. It even affected the way people read the Bible. You know, blamed women for the fall with with Eve, you know, tempting Adam and all these sorts of things, and reading certain readings of Saint Paul. And so people began to to rethink this. And one of the surprising sources of this rethink, uh, Mark, was you have the typical suspects like you know the inspiration of the Virgin Mary. Um, strong heroes in classical mythology affected the environment. But this, one of the surprising sources that I found, Mark, was uh, the influence of Descartes. And Descartes is usually seen by Catholic um, thinkers as, as one of the enemies um, of dividing soul and body and, and, and this sort of thing. And sure, you know, there's, there is that angle, but there, there are other angles, two other angles at least, that are quite important. One is his brilliant uh, reconceptualization of, of algebra and geometry, and laying the basis for basically global positioning systems to this day. Uh, and, and the second is, is precisely in this distinction of, of mind and body, uh, which in the Baroque period were too prone to get sort of confused with each other. And, um, but in the Enlightenment period, picking up on this, this Cartesian thought of distinguishing carefully between soul and body, that they're both important, they, they somehow fit together, we don't know how, at least he didn't, um, but they're distinct, they're very distinct. And so... The assumption was that, well, because women's bodies seem to be weaker than men's, therefore their minds must be weaker. This was one of the prejudices uh, of the time. But Descartes' influence said, no, 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 no. If the soul is distinct from the body, it doesn't matter the state of the body. The mind and the soul are distinct, and therefore there's a fundamental equality between men and women at this deep spiritual and intellectual level. And it was women like Maria Agnesi, uh, Anna Morandi, and one of the other great uh, figures, Laura Bassi, a great physicist, 
uh, first uh, first female um, professor in the world, uh, and devout Catholic mother of eight. She's another figure in the book. Um, these women engaged with this Cartesian thought and, and used it as a way to sort of rethink um, the entry of women into the highest levels of um, of academia in the in the age. And the only place that you could, that women could do that was in the, the the Catholic Enlightenment in Italy. And and one of your points here is that the empiricism of the Enlightenment was fully consonant with the Catholic religion. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, Pope Benedict XIV, for example, um, he reigned from 1740 to 1758. I mean, his, his favorite authors were Thomas Aquinas and Isaac Newton. Um, hmm. So, I mean, he, he sent one of his friends, in fact, to go to England to find out more about Newton and translate his works um, back into Italy. And and so these great figures, Laura Bossi, the, the female physicist I just mentioned, uh, she was one of the earliest figures and one of the greatest to really popularize Newton's thought within the Catholic Enlightenment circles uh, of, of Italy. In fact, some of the Catholic Enlightenment figures were actually more open to Newton um, than some of the other figures in, in Italy um, because some of the others were more attached to, to Galileo. And so there was, yeah, just a real emphasis on the importance of the empirical because, you know, facts matter, and Jesus became a little fact. He became a little baby, a little historical fact, and so we love little facts, and so we love little facts about the physical world God has made, and that was really the vision of the Catholic Enlightenment. Yeah, no, that's that's really good and, and important, I think. It's, it's, so the Benedictines are often forgotten in history, particularly of the 18th century, but yet they were uh, the lead order of the Catholic Enlightenment, particularly in the great monasteries of Germany and Austria, some of which still exist today, or today that are just so beautiful. Um, but, you know, partly, so the Benedictines have a different organization. They're much more old, they're much more ancient than the other orders. They go back to the, the late Roman period, and so they had a different organization. They weren't centralized like the medieval orders were, as in they become, the church was becoming more centralized in the Middle Ages. But the Benedicts created that, so they're more local, more suitable for like the Dark Age, or the, the Feudal Age, I should say, um, before the Middle Ages. But um, So they have a local organization, and they didn't have a central intellectual tradition, like the Jesuits and the Dominicans did, uh, with Thomas Aquinas often. Uh, they didn't have that, and so each monastery was freer to develop its own kind of approach to modern thought. And so this meant that um, the, because the, the Benedictines weren't wedded simply to scholasticism, uh, they were more open to empiricism. Uh, and so the first great um, you know, historical thinker in the early modern period that's often forgotten, Mabillon, uh, he was a great Benedictine. And his empiricism paralleled that of Newton in physics. They were both writing in like the 1670s and 1680s. And um, so the Benedictines were really open to this, to this empiricism. Then they began, um, for, for example, the University of Salzburg, a great Catholic university where the Benedictines taught. They were the first to start teaching experimental physics, the Benedictines. Out of any university in Europe, uh, the first uh, was among the Benedictines. And so they were trying to engage with the, the sciences, and they had the resources to do it because they had sort of a temporal power in the central Europe. They had huge monasteries with lots of lands and the kind of leisure, the kind of libraries, the kinds of intellectual networks throughout Europe um, that would support that kind of work. Yep. How did the Catholic Enlightenment come to an end? 
Yeah, well, it um, it kind of it kind of peters out by the by the early 1800s, um, partly because of uh, the French Revolution kind of started scaring people off, but really it was the uh, armies of Napoleon uh, who spread throughout Europe and closed a lot of these great Benedictine monasteries that I just mentioned, dispersing their books by the thousands and tens of thousands um, across Europe. There's, there's a few monasteries left, but, but many of them were closed. And so this was the, the Catholic universities closed as well. And so the, the intellectual, the, sort of the intelligentsia, the, the, um, the cultural elites of Catholicism were snuffed out uh, right at the beginning of the, of the 1800s. And so... This, in, this project of engaging with modern culture really stopped in many ways. There, there's a few later figures like Anton, Antonio Rosmini in Italy and a few other, others in the 19th century, but they were really marginalized figures, and some of them even persecuted because why, you know, the, the church really kind of many, of the, many of the people in the church kind of retreated intellectually in the 19th century up until Vatican II or just about there, um, and so there's sort of a hiatus there that the Vatican II kind of moment tries to sort of recapture some of that earlier Catholic Enlightenment uh, ideas. You, you turn to England then for the, for the uh, uh, 19th century. What was, well, 18th century as well, but what was discovered in 2016 in a home near Bristol in England? Sure. Yeah, so there was a, a British, British scholars and and uh, researchers found an engine house, uh, which is a, a sort of the, the housing unit around a Newcomen engine. Uh, Newcomen engine was the first steam engine that was invented in 1712 by Thomas Newcomen, and um, this was the first um, sort of source of power that's that's movable. That was based on fuel supply rather than like wind or animal power. Um, so that was coal, and then oil. And then, you know, up until our modern sort of energy-based economies, really, I think a key date is, is that 1712, that beginning of, of steam power that was used to pump mines and, and pump water into cities and things. And, yeah, just a few years ago, um, scholars found in, uh, in Bristol uh, an intact uh, housing unit around one of these engines that is being lived in as a private home right now. And that makes it really the, the oldest... Um, example of architecture that survives to this day that's connected to the Industrial Revolution. So it's pretty cool. And um, I use it as a symbol of just rethinking the Enlightenment once again in a third sense, a third strategy um, of the ways that Christians interacted with the, with the Enlightenment in the English-speaking world. Because the English-speaking world, the Enlightenment there was very practical. So this, like in this invention of steam engine, or like in Benjamin Franklin. And you know, inventing bifocals and uh, experimenting with electricity and things. Um, very practical, very very different than the French way, very different than the than the German way. Um, also very Protestant, because the English speaking world was was um, ever since the Reformation, except for Ireland, um, was deeply Protestant. Many different shades. Uh, there were some Catholics uh, scattered around, but um, mostly Protestant. And so, what I was interested in is saying, well, okay, so you've got conflict where the modern world and Christianity sort of butted up against each other. Uh, then you have this engagement where there's kind of an overlap between Christianity and um, the modern world. But what if you have a third alternative, which is to sort of ignore what's going on around you, um, to, to just kind of let the Enlightenment or modern culture just kind of chug on. And meanwhile, you're going to just pay attention to your own 
um, Christian culture from within, building up the local church, um, building up your family, etc. And so in the English-speaking world, in the midst of this practical enlightenment of business and inventions and things, Christians um, retreated. And this is the third strategy of, of retreat. And they say, that not that the outside world is bad, but that they want to focus on building up Christian culture from within. And then the stories that I tell there uh, have to do with the Wesley family in particular. Uh, and the, the household, um, particularly Susanna Wesley, the mother whose own deeply um, pious um, prayer life as an Anglican, uh, nourished the vocation, her own vocation, of course, but also the vocation of her children, in particular two of her children, Charles Wesley and John Wesley. Um, Charles uh, wrote thousands of hymns, uh, many of which are sung by Catholics and all many other Christians to this day as some of the best hymns in the English language. Uh, and John Wesley, who became one of the great evangelists of history, for sure, and certainly of the of the 18th century. If you have St. Louis de Montfort in the Catholic world, uh, you have John Wesley in the Protestant world um, preaching and, and really um, bringing the faith alive within the English-speaking world that bled across into the Great Awakening in America, um, changing cultural assumptions across the Enlightenment, even changing the Enlightenment, affecting the Enlightenment uh, as well, assumptions about human dignity, uh, the, the evil of slavery. Wesley was one of the first to speak out against the slave trade. And really, I think I'll just conclude on this thought for you, Mark, is that um, showing that it's possible to reverse secularization. Uh, because England was very secular in the early 1700s, less so by the end of the century. And that was the influence of this religious revival that was happening in the very midst of the, of the Enlightenment. The book is Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason. Thank you, Professor Stewart. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.